this is our primary text. We have a sort of a secondary text in Exodus 20, 20. But in Matthew chapter 10, verse number 28, do not be afraid of those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather, be afraid of the one who can destroy both soul and body in hell. And then in Exodus 20, 20, Moses tells the Israelites, do not be afraid. God has come to test you so that the fear of God will be with you to keep you from sinning. Strange text in that on the one hand they tell us not to be afraid, and on the other hand they tell us that we are to fear. We're continuing in our series on fear. As we've seen, the most repeated command in Scripture is do not be afraid. And this command has special significance, I think, for us as we live in a culture of fear. In the first sermon, we began by looking at the roots of this culture of fear, the biblical roots, political and cultural roots. And just to review a bit, I I think it's important to look at the biblical roots of fear. The first time we read of fear in the scripture is found in the story of the rebellion of Adam and Eve. They were created in the image of the creator to reflect his being, his goodness, his care for creation. In order to do this, it required that they learn some lessons, that they learn to trust, that they learn to obey God. But then Adam and Eve were confronted with a test, and rather than reflecting the Creator, they were promised that they would be the source of light. And what we find in their story is what we find in ourselves and in our culture, human creatures unwilling to be creatures, humans seeking to declare themselves as self-created. Rather than being creatures, they wanted to be creators. They were tempted by the words of the serpent, you will be like God. Rather than reflecting the goodness and the beauty of God, they wanted to claim goodness and beauty as their own. And it was when they sought to be the source of all things that they came to experience fear. The second sermon, we looked at the fact that many people think of fear as primarily an emotion or a matter of the intellect. And I suggested in the sermon that, in fact, fear is a moral issue. It is a moral issue in that it shapes the kind of people we become. And the kind of people we become has a lot to do with how we see or how we view the world around us. How we view the world shapes how we act in the world, and therefore it affects us as moral beings. In ethical terms, we should consider that the first question we ask is, what is going on? Because before we know what to do, we need to know what is going on, and then we know what is right and what is wrong. In a culture of fear, the answer to the question, what is going on, is, we are in danger. If we accept this as the answer to the first question, what is going on, then our dominant description of the world will be, shaped by this idea of self-preservation. And our moral vision becomes very, very narrow. It becomes a tunnel vision. Fear becomes sort of the background noise to our lives. And fear tempts us to make safety and self-preservation our highest goals. And when we do this, our moral focus becomes protection of life and of health. Security becomes the new idol before whom all other gods must bow. And as I said, it it promotes what we call shadow virtues, suspicion, 
preemption and accumulation. And these replace what God intends to be virtues of hospitality, peacemaking and generosity. Excessive or disordered fear can tempt us to the vices such as cowardice, sloth, rage and violence. But also what it does, it inhibits virtues such as hospitality, peacemaking and generosity. Last week we looked at the we tried to answer the question, why is fearlessness not the answer to this problem? If we live in a culture of fear, perhaps we want to say, okay, I will then be fearless, and that is the biblical answer to fear. No, it is not. So we saw Thomas Thomas Aquinas argued that we can become fearless in one of three ways, and none of them are good. Um, To put them in contemporary terms, we can become fearless when we become detached. When we no longer love anyone or anything, then we have no fear. We can become fearless through ignorance. They say ignorance is bliss. And so the bliss of ignorance can, in fact, promote in us a sense of fearlessness. Or the pursuit of invulnerability will give us a sense of fearlessness, that nothing can touch us or hurt us. I tried to make the case last Sunday that fearlessness is not a virtue, it is in fact a vice. We fear evil because it threatens the things that we love, family, friends, community peace, life itself. And this means that the only way to avoid fear is to love less or to love not at all. This is the detachment. If we love nothing, then we have nothing to fear. As I mentioned last week, we see this in sort of the Jedi ethic of the Star Wars films, where Anakin Skywalker begins to fear because he loves. And because he loves, he fears. And as Yoda tells him, that is the path to the dark side. So the Jedi ethic is do not love anyone or anything, and therefore, and thereby you will not fear anything, and you won't be tempted by the dark side. But stop and think a minute, as followers of Jesus, is it a good thing that we love no one or nothing? This is, in fact, the exact opposite of what it means to be a follower of Jesus. This means, and we talked about this last week, that there is, in fact, a connection between fear and love. Some people would see them as opposites. And part of this, I think, is... You think of the verse in 1 John that perfect love casts out fear so that if you have love, you will not have fear. But in fact, fear is the shadow side of love. In fact, Aquinas went as far as to say that fear is born of love. Our response to living in a dangerous world should not be an attempt at fearlessness. Rather, it should be an attempt to fear in the right way, at the right time, and to the right extent. Love and fear are to walk hand in hand. You cannot get rid of one without getting rid of the other, because fear is born of love. One of the things that fear does is it serves to awaken us to loves that perhaps we have neglected or taken for granted. It is when we find out that we may lose something When we begin to fear that we will lose something, that we realize that that something or that someone is important to us, that it is someone that we love dearly. 
in this way, fear is actually a gift. And fearlessness is a vice, not a virtue. Think a moment. We love much about our world, and yet our power to preserve what we find in our world is very, very limited. We live in a world whose nature is governed by change. And so life includes both growth and decay, both birth and death, both victory and defeat. Being a human being, being a creature, means that we are limited and we are mortal. These are not evil. This is a part of what it means to be human. One writer put it this way, They are shadows cast when the light of God's goodness shines on a fragile and finite world. Our limitations and our mortality. And love in a changing world casts a shadow that hints at inevitable loss. And the larger the love, the larger the shadow. And the larger the shadow, the larger the fear. We must take care, and we talked about this last week, that Augustine wrote about how he lost a dear, dear friend and how it almost destroyed him, how it overwhelmed him. We must take care that we do not allow the shadow of loss to diminish our ability to love and enjoy what is present right now. What is dangerous and what we should avoid is not fear, but excessive fear. Love and loss are natural, and so is fear. I think it was Augustine who said, to love is to plant seeds of sorrow. Because there is, in a changing world, always the reality of loss at some point in the future. If fear is born of love, then, as I said earlier, fear can also awaken us to loves that we have taken for granted, that we have overlooked or forgotten. It can be that when our loves are most threatened, that we see most clearly how much they mean to us and how important they are. Fear alerts us to our loves in a powerful way. In scripture, we read about the fear of the Lord, and it is presented as a gift. It is the beginning of wisdom, and in Isaiah 11, it is a gift of the Spirit. But this is something, I think, that is widely misunderstood, and as one writer put it, it is one of the most offensive things in the Old Testament. People hate this notion of the fear of the Lord, because in the New Testament, God is our buddy, as some people would have him be. And in the Old Testament, he's someone we're supposed to be afraid of, and so they would rather sort of just ditch the Old Testament and stay in the New Testament. But what does it mean, this idea of the fear of the Lord? Well, in part, God wants us to turn our fear away from worldly objects that only manipulate, seek to control and coerce us, and to redirect our fear toward God, whose power does not threaten our good, our true good, but sustains it. On the one hand, I think there is a real sense that we should fear God because he is all-powerful and we are finite. But there's something else, and I think this is the beginning of wisdom. We don't simply fear God because he's omnipotent. If fear is driven by love and the possibility of losing love, then the fear of the Lord is a fear that something will come between us and the Creator. 
because we realize that our lives have real meaning when we are in relationship with the Creator. And when that is threatened, then that is something that is very destructive indeed. As one writer put it, the fear of the Lord is the deeply sane recognition that we are not God. Today, let's look at putting fear in its place. In light of our text, but also consider the words of the hymn from the hymn Amazing Grace. "'Twas grace that taught my heart to fear, and grace my fears relieved. How precious did that grace appear the hour I first believed. What we hear in the first line of this hymn is that we need to be taught to fear. We need to be taught to fear well. Excessive or disordered fear can tempt us to vices, as I said earlier, to make us cowards, to make us lazy, or to cause us to rage and perhaps even engage in violence. Again, I think that's a possibility, but perhaps more than that, fear can cause us not to do the things that we should do, the virtues that we should be engaged in of hospitality, generosity, and peacemaking. Grace puts fear in its place in two ways, which we'll look at today. It helps us deal with the fear, what we should not fear. That's the first problem we face, fearing what we should not. And secondly, fearing as we should not. Grace will help us to deal with this. Let's consider both of these. First of all, fearing what we should not. I would suggest that there are four different ways in which we might fear and um, need to be corrected. The first is we might fear something that is at hand but isn't really of great magnitude. And this is usually the category of phobias. Like if you're scared of spiders. You know, that you have this great deep fear of something that is nearby, but it's actually not a huge deal. Um, Phobias involve fearing something excessively, something that is a part of everyday life, something that doesn't pose a significant threat, but somehow just becomes an excessive or an overwhelming fear. By the way, I'm not, I'm not saying, I'm not making light of that. Uh, The fear of public speaking. Fear of heights. These are phobias, and I'm not saying that they're not nothing. But we need to consider that they should not be excessive fears to the point where they paralyze us and don't allow us to do the things that we should do. The second kind of fear that we should avoid or get rid of is fearing something that is of significant, it is a significant threat, but it's not imminent, it's not nearby. So, for example, shark attacks. Last I heard, I don't think there's any great danger of shark attacks on Melrose Avenue. Um, And yet people watch it on TV. They have Shark Week on Discovery Channel. And this almost excessive, obsessive fear begins to possess people. One way to test our fear is to ask whether or not the evil we fear is far off or close at hand. If an evil is remote and far off, we should fear it either not at all or very little. And this is really important for us who live in a culture of fear in the global village. 
Because if you think about it, evils that are far off somehow magically end up in our living rooms, on our television sets. 24-hour news stations make sure that disasters, assaults, kidnappings, and murders are relayed to their viewers almost immediately. Breaking news. And there it is in your house. And so it isn't actually close by, it's far away, but through technology, it seems that it is in fact eminent. Events that once would have only been known about locally and perhaps not even right away, now suddenly are known within hours in a person's house. Evils are brought close that in fact are not close. They are made to seem eminent when in fact they are quite far away. This causes us to fear when in fact we should not fear. I've told a number of you this story when I began reading uh, Scott Bader Say's book on fear. In 1998, in the 2020 news show, they examined the problem with patients catching fire on the operating table when a surgical instrument ignites oxygen from a face mask. The very thought of this, uh, Bader Say writes, may cause our anxiety levels to rise and seeing the face of one victim magnifies our fear. The story gives the impression that this is a danger that could happen to any one of us. Yet this tragedy happens only once out of every 270,000 surgeries. That is about 0.0004% of the time. Barbara Walters, who is narrating this piece, tells the viewer that this happens more often than you might think. Which is true because I never thought about it. I, I never thought about catching fire on the operating table. And this, ta- this story creates a false sense of danger in terms of eminence and magnitude. But I would argue this is not only true of what we see on television in terms of news or news documentaries. It happens even in fictional television shows. One writer calls it the mean world syndrome. He writes, if you are growing up in a home where there is more than, say, three hours of television per day, for all practical purposes, you live in a meaner world and act accordingly than your next door neighbor who lives in the same world but watches less television. The programming reinforces the worst fears and apprehensions and paranoia of a people. I remember the one time that I visited New York City, 2004, we rode the subway and I expected to be assaulted numerous times. Uh, getting from point A to point B. And in fact, it was a quite pleasant experience. And I was like, but I watch Law and Order all the time. And where are the muggers? I'm somewhat disappointed. Because of this, it is easy for us to misjudge the eminence or the nearness of danger. Since through television, dangers of all sorts enter our houses daily. And as a result, I think it is difficult for us to judge accurately how close or how great a danger might be. So a great danger, even though it is far away, may seem much closer than it truly is. So a tsunami that hits Sumatra, suddenly I'm scared to go down to Santa Monica Bay, when in fact this is a danger that is quite far away. Living in a culture of fear with the technology that we have, we are often no longer sure what difference it makes if an evil is near or far. 
We assume evil is evil and it's on the TV and therefore it must be nearby. Because of media exposure, because of the magnitude, um, fear is created in us. And then we might fear an object that may be of great magnitude and may be close by, but actually doesn't threaten a loss of anything or anyone that we love. We might oppose it, but it is not necessarily something we should fear. And here, um, and I'll just touch on this briefly, this, I think, on all, all levels of the political spectrum, we see people playing this game. That if this piece of legislation is fear, your way of life is threatened. And we may oppose a particular piece of legislation, but we need not be overcome by excessive fear that, oh, if this, if this bill passes, our way of life as we know it is threatened or is finished. And there we are filled with fear. The last kind of fear that we should get rid of is fearing an evil that does in fact threaten something we love, but it's something we should not love. Thomas Aquinas referred to this as worldly fear. It's based on worldly love. Worldly love is the love whereby a person trusts in the world as his or her end. This is what my life is all about. And this kind of love turns us away from God, as does this kind of fear. The fear of losing worldly loves makes us cling more tightly to them. We're scared that we might lose something. And so we pay more attention to them. When we love money, power, possessions, fame, leisure, status. When we fear their loss, we focus more energy on their preservation. Zib and I were talking about this before Sunday school. One might imagine that the accumulation of worldly goods makes you more secure. In fact, the accumulation of goods makes you afraid that you might lose them. The more we have, the more we have to lose. And then we are filled with excessive fear that we might lose them. Could you argue, in fact, that those who have the resources to fend off danger and evils are rarely less fearful than those who have less? Uh, Bader Say, in his book, uses himself as an example. He said he used to drive a 20-year-old Chevy Nova. He never used to lock the car doors. But then, as his family got bigger, he traded in for a relatively new minivan. Then he began locking all the doors, careful to do so all the time. Now he had something to lose. Of course, that a 20-year-old Chevy Nova, I think, would be a nice car to have, but apparently was not of great value to him until he got the new minivan and then he said, oh no, I might lose this. We better lock it. He argues that one way of testing whether our possessions have begun to possess us would be to reflect on the fear we have of losing them. When we have a high level of fear at the thought of losing them, it is likely that we are looking or we are holding on to our stuff too tightly. And when we are holding tightly then we do not have open hands of generosity. And we think of ourselves as owners of property rather than as stewards of God's property. 
We've talked in the past few weeks how that marketers, politicians, and advertisers have used fears to manipulate the, the public. I mentioned this earlier in Sunday School. Guy and I have been noticing this through this series, but a particular commercial this past week, the copy went something like this. I was worried that I didn't have enough life insurance, and I was afraid I couldn't afford it. It's like, well, that's a twofer there. I mean, you're worried and you're afraid. And do the advertisers know what they're doing? Absolutely. Worry about not having something and that the fear that you might not be able to get something. This manipulation, however, requires something of us that we should not give. It requires that we care more about things than we should. And if we don't, then advertising will make sure that, in fact, we do care about about them more than we should. If we do not control our love of things, then we are easy prey for marketers, politicians, and advertisers who will gladly take advantage of our compulsions and our addictions and our desire to hold on to things. So that's what we should not fear. What about fearing as we should not? Fear can become distorted or disordered, uh, disordered, not just when we fear what we should not, but when we fear excessively, when we fear as we should not. How do I know if I'm fearing excessively? I mean, is there some type of meter? I mean, on a scale of one to ten, how do I know if my fear is excessive? I would suggest, following the, the lead of Aquinas and others, that we fear excessively when we allow the avoidance of evil to trump or to outdo the pursuit of the good. That we're so afraid of evil that it keeps us from doing the good that we should. When we fear excessively, we live in a mode of reacting to and plotting against evil rather than actively seeking out and doing what is good and right. Excessive fear causes our scope of vision to narrow when in fact it needs to be enlarged. A reminder at this point, our goal should be to avoid being or fearing excessively because it is not always wrong to fear the loss of possessions. I don't think it's wrong to fear losing one's job because one must provide for one's loved ones or to lose one's home, a place where one's loved ones stay, or to lose one's health. I do not think it is wrong to fear these things. What is wrong is to fear them excessively to the point where it paralyzes us and does not allow us to do the things that we should do. To lose temporary goods that have significance, I think, is something to be feared. But we need to remember, lest we get too pious, that they are, in fact, goods. They are things that God has given to us. But will we hold on to those at the price of not sharing with those who are in need? It is not wrong to fear the loss of one's home, but it is wrong to fear the loss of one's home so much that one limits hospitality in order to hang on to one's household. If I let strangers into my house, they might take something. They might do damage to what I have. 
Well, I don't think it's wrong for you to say, this is what God has given me and I want to take care of it. But we should not fear so much that it keeps us from sharing what we have with others. If we imagine that we are entitled to something, it takes away our ability to give thanks and to receive what we have as gifts. Because we think this, this, is my, this is what I'm entitled to. Instead of, this is what God has graciously and mercifully given to me. And perhaps what God intends is for me to share with others what he has given to me. When we feel in, entitled to what we have, we feel or we resent any threat to those possessions. And though we may not think about it this way, when we fear losing possessions, deep down there is a deep, dark resentment of God that he would take these things away from us. Earlier in the series, we have seen that excessive fear causes us to either attack or to contract within ourselves. So we should ask ourselves, to what extent have we turned inward? Are we contracting? Are we not helping others? Or are we in fact sharing with others? Has contraction begun to stifle our joy, that we can no longer feel joy at the things we have because we're so afraid of losing them? We're afraid somebody else might make a mark on it. And therefore, the joy that we would have in that is gone. Has our commitment to self-preservation caused us to turn our backs on those who need us? As we've seen by way of review, fear is related to love. In that we love, when we love, we fear the loss of that which we love. Well, joy is also related to love. In that it is experienced in the presence of the beloved. When I'm with someone I love, there is joy. So in a real sense, Fear and joy have become second cousins. They are, in fact, related. But when fear becomes excessive and disordered, joy is not seen as a relative. It is seen as an enemy. How dare you be filled with joy and rejoice? Don't you know what's going on? And in fact, we find ourselves unable to rejoice in the presence of what we love because we're too afraid of losing it. In Luke chapter 10, Jesus was asked by a lawyer, Teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? What is written in the law? He replied, how do you read it? He answered, love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul, with all your strength, with all your mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. If you have answered correctly, Jesus replied, do this and you will live. But he wanted to justify himself, so he asked Jesus, and who is my neighbor? One can see this as a question of contraction, a question of limits. Where does my responsibility end? And a question of fear. If you think about it, in some ways this lawyer is saying, I've I've kept these. I've kept these. As long as my neighbor is a narrow circle. And so he asked Jesus, who is my neighbor? Because if, in fact, that circle gets much larger, I could be in serious trouble. In response, Jesus tells him the parable of the Good Samaritan. And in this story, two men, a priest and a Levite, refuse to extend themselves. 
to help the man who had fallen among thieves. Perhaps it was that they feared that the danger that happened to him, the thing that happened to him, might happen to them. And so they kept going. The Samaritan in the story extended himself. He exposed himself to the possibility of danger. He gave assistance, his time and his money. Which of these three do you think was a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of thieves? The expert in the law replied, the one who had mercy on him. Jesus told him, go and do likewise. Neighbor is not a quality one has to have in order to be cared for. Rather, neighbor is a quality of those who show mercy to the broken. But this will not be done and dare we say, cannot be done in a state of fear. Over half a century ago, Han Urs van Balthazar, Balthazar is generally how he is known, wrote the following, Only a Christian who does not allow himself to be infected by modern humanity's neurotic anxiety has any hope of exercising a Christian influence on this age. He will not haughtily turn away from the anxiety of his fellow men and fellow Christians, but will show them how to extricate themselves from their fruitless withdrawal into themselves and will point out the paths by which they can step out into the open, into faith's daring. Fear has caused the modern world to contract neurotic anxiety. As Christians, as God's people, if we are followers of Jesus, we need to break out of that and walk in faith, in daring faith, rather than being like those around us. Bader Say writes that he used to think that the angels in the Bible, you know, whenever they would appear, they would start their messages with, do not be afraid, was because their, their appearances were so frightening. But now he suspects that they begin this way because the quieting of fear is required in order to hear And to do what God asks of us. If we are filled with fear, we cannot hear the word of God. And we will not do the things that God has told us, has called us to do. Fear makes it difficult for us to embrace the vulnerability involved in discipleship. And fear tempts us to replace Jesus' ethic of risk. Take up your cross and follow me with an ethic of security. I want to end the sermon with a series of questions that I want you to consider. They are, if you wish, diagnostic questions to help us put fear in its place. There are eight of them. They won't be on the test. But I want you to consider them. Number one, is the thing you fear actually present or fast approaching? Or is it far off either in terms of distance, time, or likelihood? Is it close? Is it far? Secondly, is the thing you fear really powerful and able to do you harm? Or is it something that is generally small and harmless? Thirdly, is the thing you fear really a threat? Or does it just seem scary because it is strange? Number four, are you afraid of losing something that is of real importance? Or is that something 
a thing you shouldn't be so concerned about in the first place. I'm tempted to give personal examples, but I, I will restrain. Number five, do you fear so much that you are closing in on yourself or unjustly lashing out at others? It's attack or contract. Are you pulling in? Are you attacking others because of fear? Number six, does your fear keep you from doing things you know you should do? Because there might be some danger involved. Or it might be taken the wrong way. Or you might be taken advantage of. Number seven, does your fear take away the joy you feel in the presence of things you love because you're afraid of losing them? Here I will give an example. About four months after my wife and I were married, her father passed away. And I remember thinking how painful this is for Nanai to lose her husband, for Guy and her siblings to lose their father. Perhaps it is not Perhaps it is better not to marry at all. And, and then you won't suffer this sorrow. That's fear. That's a fear-based decision. And do we fear so much that we cannot enjoy the gifts that God has given us here and now? We're afraid of losing them. One day we will all lose each other. That is the nature of life. We are limited. We are finite. We're mortal. Does that mean there is no love now? There is no joy now? How sad. And lastly, is your fear the result of someone's attempt to manipulate you? Ask yourself, is somebody profiting from your fearfulness? In a capitalistic culture of fear, somebody is out to make money off of your fear. And you need to ask yourself, is this a real danger or am I being manipulated? The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. God is in control. doesn't mean things will turn out the way we want them to. And there are things we are to fear, but not excessively. And they are not to keep us from doing the things God has called us to do. Let's pray together. Our Father, in some ways, fear is so pervasive in our culture, it's somewhat difficult to step back and see it. It's in the air that we breathe. It seems to be everywhere. And to some extent, we have sort of, we have ignored the command, do not be afraid. Or we see it in a very narrow sense. We've looked at so many things today and in the past few weeks. I pray that by your spirit, you would give each of us understanding to meditate on these things and work them through.
and see what your calling is in our lives. That fear should not keep us from obedience. We should not sort of circle the wagons and keep the heathen out. But by your grace, be open-handed and generous and live lives of daring faith. I thank you that we could gather today to worship you on Palm Sunday. May we in the days to come think on the events that happened so long ago. We do pray for Tom and Anne as they travel. You would give them safety and bring them back to us. Now I ask that your grace and spirit would go with us as we leave this place. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.